You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Uh, I heard that you're moving to New York City to live. Is it so? Yes. Um, this will be my home from now on. Mm-hmm. That is until I retire. And when I retire, I'm going to retire to Brooklyn. Really? <laughs> my Brooklyn. Oh, that's my favorite place in the world so far that I've seen. Sure. I haven't traveled much, but I don't think I'll find anything to replace Brooklyn. You're going to help our rating in Brooklyn about nine points. Well, uh, why, why is it Brooklyn? What, what happens there with you? Well, almost everything. I just like walking around. I think the view's better from Brooklyn. You know, you can look back over and see Manhattan. Yeah, that's, that's the only the, place you can see Manhattan from here. That's way, the right? best view, but it isn't only the view. It's the people. It's, um, I like the streets. I guess the people and the streets and the atmosphere, I just like it. Today on The Bowery Boys, we're spending 1955 in New York with Marilyn Monroe. It was a year of, I think, self-discovery for Marilyn. She was only 28, 29 at the time, which now, you know, seems very, very young. And she was able to, for the first time since she'd become famous, drop the persona that she had created and try to discover who she really was without the, the Marilyn Monroe glamour aura around her. So she was able for the first time to to go to New York and, and live somewhat anonymously and delve into acting in a more serious way. And that's what she wanted to do more than anything was to be taken seriously as an actress. Episode 398 of The Bowery Boys, Marilyn Monroe in New York. Hi there, welcome to The Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And today we're jumping smack into the middle of the 20th century to spend time with one of our favorite cultural icons, Marilyn Monroe. Ah, Miss Marilyn Monroe on Mm. the Bowery Boys at last. (laughs) But this is a very different story from some you may have heard. Contemporary portrayals of her life have focused on the most salacious, most intimate details. Go to the Hollywood section of any bookstore and you'll find all sorts of biographies propped up by gossip and innuendo. Many actually tend to rob her of her own personal agency. But in fact, she made a big move in her life in 1954 in an effort to develop as a serious actress. 
And that was when she quit Hollywood and moved to New York City. And she spent nearly all of 1955 here exploring the city, working on her craft, falling in love, and really being the toast of the town. So that's the story that we're focusing on today. Marilyn's year of self-improvement. Where did she live and go out, of course, but also how did she try to reinvent herself while living here? Because that is a very New York story. Mm-hmm. I mean, who hasn't used the streets of New York to find themselves? I mean, True. I can relate. Yeah, it's very relatable. Of course, most of us do it as nobodies. But <laughs> Marilyn was attempting to do this while being, at the same time, one of the world's most famous people. And today, as an extra treat, at the end of the show, we'll be joined by Alicia Malone of Turner Classic Movies and my old buddy and co-host of the official Gilded Age podcast. Alicia, as many of you know, is a classic film expert and an author, and we'll be discussing her perspective on Marilyn, because she dedicated an entire chapter to Marilyn in her 2021 book, Girls on Film, Lessons from a Life of Watching Women in Movies. So much glamour in store today on the Barry Boys. The French are glad to die for love. They delight in fighting duels. But I prefer a man who lives and gives expensive jewels. But of course, Marilyn is not typically considered a New Yorker. This move wouldn't really happen until she was in her late 20s. Right. She wouldn't move to New York until the end of 1954 when she was 28 years old. So why don't we quickly jump back and tell her story up to this point? She was born Norma Jean Mortensen in Los Angeles on June 1st, 1926. And her childhood was really very difficult. Famously difficult, in fact. You know, Tom, in college, I had a Marilyn phase, mm-hmm, and so I of course. T- dove into some of these old bios, so I know a little bit about her background. And it is a story that's been told and retold, sometimes factually, often with a lot of poetic license and pure invention in dozens of books and movies. We don't need to retell every painful detail here. No. So in brief, Norma Jean's mother... Gladys, who worked cutting films for movie studios, suffered from mental illness and was institutionalized when Norma Jean was a young girl. So throughout her childhood, she lived in foster homes. Uh, She lived with her mother's best friend, Grace. She lived in a Los Angeles orphanage, among other places. When she was 16, she married a man named James Dougherty. And James went off to fight in World War II. And it was then during the war that Norma took a job in a munitions plant and she was, quote, discovered by photographers (laughs) who were visiting the factory. It is all like a Hollywood movie in itself, right? Discovered on the, (laughs) although discovered on the assembly line is a little bit different than Schwab's pharmacy, but I can still see it. (laughs) She would spend time at Schwab's, but yeah, this was all, this was all true. And she then signed with a modeling agency in 1945. She went blonde, like her idol, Jean Harlow, and ended up getting lots of work. She did lots of magazine covers. These are the uh, Marilyn's pinup years, or Norma Jean's pinup years, actually. I'm sorry. When did she actually become Marilyn? 
1946, um, when she signed her first contract of many with 20th Century Fox, and Norma Jean Dougherty just didn't really fit. It was a mouthful. So she became Marilyn Monroe and appeared in a couple of minor films, and then Fox dropped her. And so then she got more serious about acting, taking lessons at the Actors Lab in L.A. with various acting coaches. And meanwhile, by this time, she had divorced James and started spending more time socializing and networking and, you know, working the Hollywood scene. And she was signed to Columbia briefly, where they made her a platinum blonde, And she landed roles in a couple of films in 1950, including The Asphalt Jungle and our favorite, All About Eve. A waiter. And that isn't a waiter, my dear. That's a butler. Well, I can't yell old butler, can I? Maybe somebody's name is butler. You have a point. An idiotic one, but a point. I don't want to make trouble. All I want is a drink. Leave it to me. I'll get you one. Thank you, Mr. Fabian. Well done. I can see your career rising in the east like the sun. And those then got her a new contract from Fox. And then over the next couple years, she did a whole slew of films at Fox, usually Mm -hmm. playing this bombshell blonde. And then, meanwhile, around this time, she also started dating retired New York Yankees legend Joe DiMaggio. Yes, in 1952, and they dated through the wild year of 1953 when Marilyn had three major Technicolor hits, Niagara with Joseph Cotton in January, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes with Jane Russell in June, and How to Marry a Millionaire with Lauren Bacall and Betty Grable in November. And in particular, How to Marry a Millionaire and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which are two of her best-known films, they actually show off her very unique skills of being both sexy and comedic. Mm-hmm. She's so glamorous, right? But she's also like very funny in those movies. Father, I love her. I love her very much. I've never had a feeling oh, like shut this. up. Young lady, you don't fool me one bit. I'm not trying to, but I bet I could, though. No, you might convince this jackass that you love him, but you'll never convince me. That's too bad, because I do love him. Certainly. For his money. No, honestly. Have you got the nerve to stand there and expect me to believe that you don't want to marry my son for his money? It's true. Then what do you want to marry him for? I want to marry him for your money. Well, at least we're getting down to brass tacks. You admit that all you're after is money. No, I don't. Aren't you funny? Don't you know that a man being rich is like a girl being pretty? You might not marry a girl just because she's pretty, but my goodness, doesn't it help? And if you had And daughter- those films were all huge box office hits. So, then Marilyn then by the end of 1953 was one of Fox's biggest draws. But you wouldn't know it from her contract. She made far less than her co-stars in all of those films. And she was also frustrated by the way that they kept typecasting her as, you know, the, quote, dumb blonde. And so then when she refused a role in 1954 on another movie project, Fox canceled her contract again. Which they could legally, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like a smart move to, you know, suspend your biggest star here. 
Right. So they lured her back with a starring role in a film adaptation of the Broadway comedy The Seven-Year Itch to be shot that year, 1954, and to be directed by Billy Wilder. And also, in the midst of all of this, she and Joe had married, by the way, in early 1954. Romance that thrills the world. The marriage of Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio attracts a record crowd to the San Francisco court where the ceremony is performed. Two top-flight performers living up to long-established reputations as outstanding drawing cards. Congratulations in which all movie lovers and baseball fans join. And now the pair are off for their happy honeymoon. The girl who starred in How to Marry a Millionaire, giving another starring performance in How to Marry a Baseball Hero. Nice work, Marilyn. And the same to you, Joe. And the seven-year itch, you know, another full-color, wacky comedy, is actually set in a New York apartment. Like, it is a Mm -hmm. New York movie, right? Although, it's mostly shot in Hollywood, though, right? Yes, most of it was shot at Fox, but there are some exterior scenes that were shot in September 1954 in New York. Marilyn flew to New York on September 8th, and spent several days doing interviews and being hounded by fans and the press because she was a major star. All of that before her first big scene was shot on September 13th, as she leaned out of a window at 164 East 61st Street and called out to her co-star Tom Ewell, Hey, you forgot your shoes! And threw him his shoes, which is actually the closing scene of The Seven-Year Itch. And then they did another shot where she's blow-drying her hair as he walks in through the front door. And you can obviously tell that those scenes were shot in New York. I mean, the streets look like 1950s streets mm-hmm. here in the city. And mm-hmm. I'm sure, though, this must have attracted a lot of attention. It attracted about a thousand people, including um, fans and curious bystanders and you know, lots of reporters who were kept back and out of the shot and who were begged to keep quiet. So next time you watch that scene, just imagine that there are Somehow, like a thousand people just outside of the camera shot. (laughs) Total chaos. If you think your commute is bad, imagine having to walk through this. (laughs) Well, that was simple compared to the shoot that took place two nights later from 1 to 4 a.m. on the early morning of September 15th when Billy Wilder attempted to shoot Marilyn and Tom Ewell outside the Translux Theater on Lexington Avenue near 52nd Street. And this, I believe, you're setting us up for one of the most iconic scenes in movie history, right? That white dress over the subway grate scene. Didn't you just love the picture? I did. But I just felt so sorry for the creature at the end. Sorry for the creature? Why'd you want him to marry the girl? He was kind of scary looking, but he wasn't really all bad. I think he just craved a little affection. You know, a sense of being loved and needed and wanted. That's a very interesting point of view. (laughs) Oh, do you feel the breeze from the subway? Isn't it delicious? Sort of cools the ankles, doesn't it? Well, what do you think would be fun to do now? And just imagine... Thousands of people, including hundreds of amateur and also professional photographers who were gathered around Lexington and 52nd Street in the middle of a chilly September night, 
Marilyn taking a few steps with her co-star, dressed in her white dress, um, when those underground fans kicked in, sending her dress billowing upward. Wilder insisted that everybody keep quiet for the shot. But then, after the shot was done, he he ran the wind machines over and over for the crowds as Marilyn posed and, you know, flash cubes flashed. So much pandemonium and pretty disturbing, let's face it, since there are thousands of men standing around screaming for a woman's skirt to fly up. So, okay. Yeah. But, you know, in the movie, though, it's, it, it kind of seems sort of intimate. It doesn't seem loud at all. Well, because he reshot the entire thing back at the studio in California. And there is some debate about whether or not this was always planned just for publicity or if he realized, you know, later that the footage was unusable because of all the screaming. But we do know that the Fox publicity team was really keeping the press constantly informed about Marilyn's whereabouts and the filming schedule. And, you know, the news really spread quickly. It kind of seems like a modern viral publicity strategy, you know? I mean, imagine how quickly the news would have spread on Instagram today. (laughs) And by the way, take note when you watch the scene in the film again, you'll see that the the skirt doesn't really blow as high. It's, It's kind of like a modest lift to the knees. That whole billowing thing that we're familiar with the image of, that really only happened in New York on that September night. It, hmm. it, it doesn't appear in the movie. And did you mention that DiMaggio, was he with her? Like, was he in New York at this time during the filming? He was, and he showed up during the shoot and was infuriated by the entire spectacle. He stormed back to the St. Regis at 55th and 5th, where they were staying, In his Marilyn biography, author Don Spoto quotes Marilyn's hairdresser for the trip, Gladys, who recalled that, quote, Joe was very, very mad with her, and he beat her up a little bit. There were bruises on her shoulders, but we covered them with makeup. On September 16th, the DiMaggio's returned to California, and two weeks later, Marilyn filed a petition for divorce. So by mid-September... Marilyn Monroe is actually back in Los Angeles, although she's planning her next chapter without Joe in her life, her post-DiMaggio life. Right. She took control of her marriage and was about to take control of her career in a rather shocking and exciting way, because she had teamed up with one of her friends, the fashion photographer Milton Green, to form their own production company, which would be called Marilyn Monroe Productions. Plus, as was beginning to happen with a few others, her production company could also take a production credit and a percentage of the profits. But this new company would not operate out of Hollywood. Instead, Marilyn and Milton were planning to base the company and Marilyn out of New York City. And so Marilyn and Milton boarded a flight in late November 1954 for LaGuardia Airport. Well, actually, Tom, Milton boarded the plane with a mysterious woman in a jet black wig, a woman going by the name of Zelda Zonk. (laughs) We'll get to the legend of Zelda, or rather, (laughs) Zelda's adventures in New York, right after this. (laughs) 
On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Price drop. Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Check out the newest episode of the New York Historical Society's must-listen-to podcast, For the Ages, exploring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein chats with an interesting mix of notable guests on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped the American story. In an insightful discussion, Rubenstein sits with best-selling author and former Secretary of Defense, Robert M. Gates, to discuss how the global perception of the United States has shifted since the end of the Cold War. Gates uses his first-hand knowledge to uncover how this transformation unfolded, how political leaders have wielded American power, and how future leaders can rise to the challenges to come. And then in one of our favorite episodes, Rubenstein interviews tennis great Billie Jean King. Their conversation highlights pivotal moments, including her historic victory in the 1973 Battle of the Sexes match, and underlines her mission to incorporate equality into the larger fabric of the American story. That's the podcast for the ages, available on Apple and Spotify. Do you miss your anonymity? Do you miss being able to go out and and not be recognized and go places uh, so that, uh, as it used to be before you became famous, so no one would pay any attention to you except... I'll tell you, um, I do in a way. However, I'm terribly grateful for everything that's happened because I remember when things weren't like this at all. But you do 
miss sometimes just being able to be completely yourself and someplace and people just know you as another human being. Well, now your success and has been the, or close to it, the dream of, of, of every American girl, or I guess. Uh, after you got what you want, did you want it? Well, I, as I say, uh, the thing I like the most is to become a real actress. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was a kid sitting in the front row at the movies on Saturday afternoon. And I would never come out of the movie. They'd have to come and get me, you know, I'd sit in the front row. And I'd think how wonderful it would be to be an actress and so forth. But I didn't really realize about acting. Except I appreciated what I saw. Bad, good, didn't matter. I enjoyed it very much. Everything that I would see. Anything that would move on the screen. However, um, I, I think I realize more and more the responsibility. And it is a responsibility. And as I say, I would like to be a good actress. Now, when we say Marilyn escaped to New York, we really do mean it. Because in December of 1954, she boarded a plane with Milton Green from LAX to LaGuardia Airport under the assumed name of Zelda Zonk, arriving in Queens in the early morning. Imagine how obsessed the media must have been with her in the 1950s if she had to escape like this in disguise. Mm -hmm. Um, and also imagine how impossible it would be to pull this off today with everybody having cell phones and taking pictures of her. Then once she arrived, was she planning to head straight into Manhattan? In fact, she spent a little time with the Greens in their Weston, Connecticut home. But, you know, as it goes, the news leaked mm -hmm. and reporters were already there at the house. So if Marilyn thought that she could just have a break from the press and, you know, get a few moments to collect herself... Well, sadly, that wasn't the case. But of course, Marilyn didn't come to the East Coast to party in the suburbs. No, she came here to reinvent herself as an actress. Now, before I jump into her professional journey here, I just want to reinforce, again, the incredible pressure that she was under. On January 16th, 1955, the New York Daily News ran a full-page article on Marilyn's arrival to New York, under the headline, What's New, Marilyn? Quote, There is supposed to be a new Marilyn Monroe these days. We can only tell you that, to the naked eye, there is little visible difference between the old Marilyn Monroe and the new. She is still the ideal of all red-blooded Americans who indulge in erotic daydreams. But there has been a change in her public relations, and even the most charitable of her admirers can't think this change is for the better. Yuck. And yet, I mean, that's, <laughs> yes. that is just not nice. It's like the press has put a straitjacket on her. Yeah, it's just this natural knee-jerk reaction to really anything that she does during this period. The article actually ran on the occasion of her official announcement at her lawyer's house on East 64th Street, the announcement that Marilyn and Milton were forming this production company, Marilyn Monroe Productions. Right. And this would be, as we said, a way to take back some of the control over her career and start negotiating both the types of roles that she was getting and the size of her paycheck. 
The prior year, the Hollywood Industry Dailies Roundup announced that the two biggest stars of 1954 were Marilyn Monroe and Marlon Brando. Hmm. But Brando had been nominated for Academy Awards three times already by the time Marilyn arrived in New York. And then in that year, 1955, he would even win Best Actor for his fourth nomination for the movie On the Waterfront. Okay, she wasn't getting those kinds of parts. Mm -hmm. Those were going to actresses like Grace Kelly or Audrey Hepburn. Marilyn wanted that kind of respect. And of course, it also meant not only changes in the productions that she was getting, the scripts that she was reading, but improvements in her own acting gifts. Right. I mentioned that she'd been taking acting classes back in L.A., that she had had a drama coach for years in L.A. who she was very close to. She actually had several acting teachers of note over the years, including Michael Chekhov, who was the nephew of the great playwright Anton Chekhov and a student of the great Russian dramatist Konstantin Stanislavsky. Wow. But it wasn't until her trip to New York that Marilyn would immerse herself fully in the influence of Stanislavski through a new acting teacher and one of the most important relationships in her life, Lee Strasberg of the Actors Studio. And quick aside, is is this the same Actors Studio that listeners might know from the TV show Inside the Actors Studio? Well, sort of. That show was based on a collaboration with the Actors Studio and the New School. And yes, the show's still on with a rotating group of hosts. But the Actors Studio was one of the most famous acting schools by the 1950s. And I need to just give a little background to underscore how courageous it was that Marilyn was pursuing this course of training in her career at this time. And and by this course of training, you mean learning method acting? Right. The method, capital M, is an immersive form of rehearsal which breaks down the barrier between actor and role. It was developed by Stanislavski in Russia over a hundred years ago and then burst onto the American scene in the year 1923 when Stanislavski's company, the Moscow Art Theater, toured the United States. And how does the method break down this this barrier between actor and role? Well, for those interested, I, I highly recommend Isaac Butler's new book. It's called The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. And it really enjoyably lays out the complicated story of how the style developed from its Russian roots into the predominant form of acting in the United States today. So Stanislavski's system involved the idea of using effective memory to explore a role. Mm -hmm. So the method, as it developed in the late 1920s, meant using specific rehearsal techniques to pull out those memories so then, you know, you could better exploit them on stage. Okay, (laughs) this all sounds psychologically taxing because... The, mm-hmm. the demands of the role went far beyond what was written on the page. Uh, this this mm-hmm. must have been quite different from how most films were being made at the time. Yeah, I mean, Cary Grant was not plunging into his effective memory to perform in Bringing Up Baby, right? <laughs> this was an entirely new style of acting. It was just on a different plane mm-hmm. and really electrified American entertainment. 
Now, it had already arrived in Hollywood films by the late 1940s, and then by the early 50s, you had actors like Marlon Brando and James Dean using this style to create classic performances. Today, of course, it's almost a cliche for actors who are living as their characters on or off camera. Mm -hmm. You hear (laughs) funny little stories about like Jared Leto and Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm -hmm. But when it's done well, it's really, really captivating. And and so then Marilyn went from Billy Wilder's seven-year itch subway great scene in 1954 to the actor's studio for, for method training the very next year. Yeah, I mean, this was an incredibly bold move for her in light of public pressure and her own insecurities. According to Lois Banner's biography on Marilyn Monroe, The Passion and the Paradox, she was brought to the actor's studio in the spring of 1955 by one of its founders, the director Elia Kazan, who had quite literally just won the Academy Award for Best Director for the film On the Waterfront. With Brando. And so it was here then at the actress studio where Marilyn began training with Lee Strasberg. Yes. Now, Strasberg was the king of the method. He grew up on the Lower East Side, became a stage actor in the 1920s, and then a leading proponent of the method by the following decade. During the 1950s, he began teaching at the actor's studio, and in 1955, You know, Marilyn Monroe then rolls up onto his doorstep. So, by the way, that same year, 1955, the actor's studio would move into an old church, Mm. the former United Presbyterian Church in Hell's Kitchen at 432 West 44th Street. The actor's studio, which is, you know, still very much thriving to this day, is also still home in that building. So 1955 then was a big year for the actor's studio. They would get a new permanent home And they got a new notable pupil in Marilyn Monroe. What was her training there like? Well, she was treated very differently than the rest of the actors. You know, she she was very different and was given private instruction from Strasberg himself at his Upper West Side home. And then he slowly brought her into the main actor studio group. Mm. At first, only to observe the other performers. I mean, if you can believe this, she daily slipped into rehearsal spaces in baggy clothes and no makeup. So almost incognito, at least as she could do it incognito. (laughs) I I can believe it, actually. I'll be talking about Marilyn's attempts at going incognito in just a moment. Well, eventually, she did participate in improv classes and once notably performed, quite convincingly, in fact, on the stage as a kitten. But did that require method work of her? I mean, did she use effective memory to channel that kitten? Well, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how much memory, but she did literally borrow a kitten and she studied it. She took it home and she studied it for hours. Huh? So, okay. y- yes, I mean, needless to say, this, it's very immersive work. But um, all kidding aside, all kittening, all kittens aside, <laughs> Marilyn already had a reputation even in Hollywood for keeping everybody on set, waiting as she ran through scenes with her drama coaches. And if she was already losing sleep back in Hollywood, this radical new method technique must really have been incredibly taxing on her emotionally. Which is why Strasberg recommended she go into psychoanalysis. 
like many of his other actors. In fact, starting with the psychoanalyst Margaret Hohenberg, whose apartment office was on the Upper East Side, Marilyn would continue to see psychotherapists for the rest of her life. So starting here with her time at the actor's studio. The 1950s were actually considered the golden age of psychoanalysis, and the New York Times called New York City at that time the, quote, capital of psychotherapy. Mm. So it's interesting to see it become this component, like a really core component of Maryland's New York experience. It was all, relatively speaking, kind of new. Yeah, and Strasberg was was encouraging his acting students to, quote, unblock their feelings, you know, so that they could uncover hidden moments and traumas from their past and find truth in their roles, which can also seem, you know, a bit reckless or, or dangerous for somebody like Marilyn, who had already experienced so much trauma as a child mm-hmm. and who was at the same time under such immense public pressure. Oh, I mean, she was going through it here. She'd see Dr. Hohenberg up to five times a week. Five times a week. She also leaned heavily on Strasberg, was almost reliant. She'd have dinner with them at Sardi's and get private lessons from Lee in their apartment up on 86th and Broadway. She practically became part of their family, sleeping over at their house, hanging out with their daughter Susan, and spending the weekend with them in their home on Fire Island. Lee's wife, Paula Strasberg, would go on to be by Marilyn's side for much of her life afterwards, appearing on all of her movie sets as her personal drama coach. Mm-hmm. Almost to a detriment because Marilyn was listening more to Strasberg many times than her directors. But what is very clear is that Marilyn, because of her prominence, was under a lot of pressure brought on by all of this self-exploration and introspection and psychoanalysis and the pressures of her new business. And so, like you know, many other performers at the time, she increasingly turned to pills, barbiturates, to wind down and to, to hopefully fall asleep at night. And we really should underscore that this was more common than you might imagine, that it seemed that if you were a famous person, you were often prescribed these types of medications. Yeah, her doctors, including her analysts, really kept her stocked, you know, with pills to help her sleep at night. Maybe people thought she took too many of them, but it wasn't unusual that she took them. And where was Marilyn living at this point? Well, she had been renting a suite of rooms on the sixth floor of the Gladstone Hotel, which was located on East 52nd Street between Park and Lexington. But in April, she moved to a one-bedroom suite on the 27th floor of the glamorous Waldorf Towers. So right around the corner on 50th and Park. But Tom, let's let's let our hair down a little bit, oh, shall yeah. we? I've been keeping Marilyn in the classroom <laughs> on the stage for a little too long. Do we, do we know how she was interacting with the city? Because 1955 was a swinging time to be in New York, and she was in the heart of it all. Yeah, let's pull back for a second, because we often talk about post-war New York City, you know, in terms of middle-class flight to the suburbs and the loss of manufacturing jobs and Robert Moses construction projects. Mm -hmm. And that is all true. 
You know, but there were other things happening, too. There was a, a fabulous midtown jazz and nightlife scene. Broadway was experiencing a golden age in the 1950s, you know, mm-hmm. with blockbuster musicals by Rodgers and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe and Leonard Bernstein. Right. There was also just a lot of creative energy in the city. And she planted herself right in the middle of it. Yeah. Midtown East. Now, Midtown East does not sound exactly hip today, but it was actually back then. Yeah, I mean, she regularly, you know, headed to places like the Copacabana, uh, the nightclub that was located at the time at 10 East 60th Street, just off of Fifth Avenue. The hottest restaurants were up here in the 50s. Uh, She dined frequently at the 21 Club, uh, which was located at 21 West 52nd. I mean, I'm telling you, this is where it was all happening, Greg. And she wasn't afraid to hit the town. Take the night in January, when, as you mentioned, she and Milton announced the launch of their company, MMP. Um, That happened at the house of their lawyer, Frank Delaney's, on East 64th. But then she decided, on a whim, to head over to the Copacabana to see Frank Sinatra sing. So, So the party headed over to East 60th and 5th, despite it being sold out. But when the management saw that it was Marilyn and her entourage, they quickly rolled out a new table for them down front, uh, (laughs) much to Sinatra's initial annoyance until he saw who was interrupting his act. And then after the show, all of them, including Sinatra, headed down to 21 for a late dinner and then to a really late after party at Marlena Dietrich's Park Avenue apartment. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a night on the town. <laughs> Who can, we can all relate to those types of uh, experiences. That is just how Marilyn rolled. And do you think she played up the whole Marilyn routine when she was in town, when she was out on the town like this? Well, many of her friends would later write about the way that she could turn it on and turn it off. You know, she could be Marilyn the movie star, or she could be a, a normal person. In the book, Marilyn in Manhattan, Her Year of Joy, author Elizabeth Winder writes about a day in January when Marilyn headed off with Milton and another friend sauntering down Fifth Avenue, stopping at Elizabeth Arden and other spots. Quote, Marilyn looked particularly beautiful in those first months of 1955. She cut a stark hourglass figure and fitted black cashmere. And for once, her figure looked elegant not exaggerated. Cars screeched to a halt on the curb. Somewhere on 54th Street, a checker cab crashed into the back of a delivery truck, its day's driver grinning out the window. Marilyn! That's almost like a Billy Wilder scene. It's so wacky. (laughs) But I think she also seemed to really relish living in New York, you know, where she could head off disguised in in sunglasses and a wig and and go shopping or take a walk without being recognized. And and that was really the case right from the start, even before she moved into the Gladstone and was still living with the Greens. The gossip columnist Hedda Hopper wrote in her January 8th, 1955 column, quote, disguised Marilyn having the time of her life. Marilyn Monroe, disguised in a black wig and wearing a black hood, is having the time of her life playing cops and robbers as she commutes between Connecticut, where she's visiting the Milton Greens, and Manhattan, where she's never recognized. Wow, I I, I find it somehow hard to believe that she wasn't recognized. I mean, this must have been 
a really good wig. Like someone call RuPaul. That kind of a wig. Zelda Zonk, Shantae, you stay. But she wasn't always bewigged because as she got more into her acting studies and psychoanalysis, she also, you know, relaxed her style a bit and just heading out in blue jeans and a sweatshirt with hardly any makeup. But then again, most of her friends would note that she sometimes couldn't stand the anonymity and that she would sometimes revert to being Marilyn. Donald Spoto included in his biography an anecdote told by Amy Green, Milton's wife, who one day took the disguised Marilyn shopping along Fifth Avenue, and she wasn't recognized. Quote, But as they went through stores and aisles, Marilyn gradually put aside, piece by piece, the outfit she wore, until finally she tore off her wig and dark glasses, rushed into a dressing room, and emerged as Marilyn Monroe, to the astonishment and excitement of everybody at Saks Fifth Avenue. I mean, what a reveal. I mean, it sounds like her life is a musical. Was she surrounded by chorus boys? Well, it was Saks Fifth Avenue in the 50s. I'm sure there were some chorus boys. <laughs> but she did go full Marilyn on March 9th for the premiere of Elia Kazan's new film, East of Eden. It was actually a fundraiser to help the actor's studio purchase their new home. Uh, so she volunteered to usher, along with other bold-faced names, Arlene Francis, Gloria Vanderbilt, and as George Oppenheimer wrote in his Newsday column, Other Graces. Oppenheimer spent his whole column that week recounting how he tried desperately to get an interview with Marilyn at the event to learn more about what she was planning to do in New York, but she kept squeaking by all of the reporters. He writes, quote, I finally managed to reach Miss Monroe. Miss Monroe, I said, lowering my voice so that no other reporters could filch my scoop. What are your plans? <laughs> to see the movie, said Miss Monroe. And then she proceeded down the aisle amidst thunderous cheers from the thrilled spectators. <laughs> and she was busy. I mean, on March 30th, Marilyn was dressed up for another charity event, this time in a rather sexy feathered number, riding a pink elephant, at the opening night of the Ringling Brothers Circus at Madison Square Garden, back when the garden was up on 50th and 8th. Oh, yeah. I mean, this would not be the last time she performed at that Madison Square Garden. We'll get to that in a moment. And over the course of this year, I mean, she often went to the theater, sometimes seen shows multiple times in order to study performances. And, and it was through the theater that she also found the next great love in her life the playwright Arthur Miller. Now, Marilyn spent a lot of time uh, with the fashion photographer Sam Shaw, who took some iconic photos of her, including one of the best known of the subway great shots. And it was through Sam, Marilyn became friends with the author and poet Norman Rostin and his wife Hedda. And they introduced her to their friend, Arthur Miller, who had already had a Broadway smash with The Crucible and would soon have another that year with his play A View from the Bridge. Can we just stop for a moment and reflect on that factoid? The fashion photographer to the poet to the playwright. So Marilyn is living quite an amazing mid-century glamour world here in New York City. Absolutely, yeah. And, and don't overlook the fact that, you know, Unlike so many of the people with whom she associated here, 
Marilyn was not from a wealthy family. She didn't have an expensive education. She never went to college, much less a fancy college. And she was always trying to learn more. She always had a stack of books next to her bed that ran from Dostoevsky to avant-garde poetry. Marilyn was no dumb blonde. And so here we have Marilyn meeting Arthur Miller. Who unfortunately was already married and didn't want that marriage to end. And neither did Marilyn. And, And by the way, Marilyn was also still seeing Joe, you know, even if they had officially separated So that year, Marilyn would manage to have romantic relationships with both of these men. So this is a very epic year. She's immersed in her acting studies, secretly seeing a celebrated playwright, shopping incognito. And yet in the middle of this year, on June 1st, the seven-year itch premiered at Lowe's State Theater on 45th and Broadway at the, the heart of Times Square. And her date for that was Joe DiMaggio. Their divorce wouldn't be final until October. But they would even then remain friends. And here he was with her at her side for this big star-studded premiere. A popular Broadway New York theater radiates glamour for the sneak preview of the Cinemascope version of The Seven Year Itch and the birthday of its star, the incomparable Marilyn Monroe, who thrills the theatrical district with a personal appearance escorted by the great Joe DiMaggio. Miss Monroe wears a short, tight-fitting evening dress molded to the figure with the popular V neckline. A vision of delight. And the seven-year itch would go on to become the biggest hit of the summer, making Marilyn really America's biggest star. And this whole time, Marilyn is still living at the Waldorf Towers? Well, she moved that fall to Two Sutton Place. Um, at the far eastern end of 56th Street, uh, historically one of the most affluent areas of the city, uh, just north of the UN headquarters, which had only really been open for a few years by the time Marilyn arrived. And this would be her final home here this year, a year that, by the way, would take a very pleasant twist for Marilyn, as Milton and her lawyers had negotiated a much better deal with Fox to, to bring her on home. Under the new term, she would now have much more control over the movies that she'd appear in. She could work with other studios. Uh, She got a hefty raise. There'd be tax benefits and much more. Wow. I mean, this sounds like such a great deal. So much better than what she had before. Yeah. Suddenly, the critics who had dismissed her, you know, had to face up to the fact that, as Time magazine said in January 1956, Marilyn Monroe is a shrewd businesswoman. And that winter, into 1956, her romance with Arthur Miller continued, and he introduced her to his childhood streets in Brooklyn, which she just adored. And on February 25th, 1956, Marilyn left New York and returned to Los Angeles, a very different woman than the one who'd arrived in New York just a little over a year before. We'll get to Marilyn, Arthur, the rest of the story and our interview with Alicia Malone after this. Hop, hop, hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, 
Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Sports fans witnessed a very curious event on May 12, 1957, Inside the famed Ebbets Field, home of the Brooklyn Dodgers, a banner in the stadium read, Long Live the State of Israel. The occasion was a marking of the ninth anniversary of the creation of the State of Israel. A sold-out stadium of almost 40,000 spectators watched as an Israeli soccer team played a team of American all-star players. A telegram had been sent to the Israeli players prior to their visit, asking which famous American they would like to meet. And the vote was unanimous. Marilyn Monroe. To quote from the Israeli Davar Daily, Suddenly, an open convertible burst into the stadium, and in the back seat, there she was. Marilyn rose to her feet and waved to every section of the audience. Marilyn had to kick the ball no less than three times, twice for the many photographers who had gathered on the field, and once for the soccer players. The goalkeeper had a few particularly close moments with Marilyn. After the game was over, he was asked if the four goals he conceded were a result of being starstruck by the actress. It was a magical moment and a forgotten moment in New York City history. Just a few months later, on September 24th, 1957, the Brooklyn Dodgers would play their final game at Ebbets Field. And the following year, they would move to Maryland's other hometown and become the Los Angeles Dodgers. On February 23rd, 1960, workmen began to dismantle Ebbets Field. Wow, Greg, maybe we have listeners who went to that game or or who have relatives who were there. Uh, if so, let us know. And so that was the spring of 1957. Can I assume then that she was married to Arthur Miller by this time? She was. Miller and Marilyn Monroe had indeed gotten married in the summer of 1956. And the couple lived in Connecticut, although they were often down in New York City at 444 East 57th Street, near Marilyn's other apartment in Sutton Place, which you mentioned earlier. 
Now, I think it's interesting that she actually converted to Judaism before her marriage, as Arthur Miller was of Polish Jewish descent. I think you can view this not only as Marilyn's respect for the faith, but as her desire to, quote, settle down a little bit. Gloria Steinem later wrote of Marilyn, quote, Arthur Miller himself was not religious, but she wanted to be part of his family's tradition. I'll cook noodles like your mother, she told him on their wedding day. She was optimistic that this marriage would work. On the back of a wedding photograph, she wrote, hope, hope, hope. And how is her career going? Did her production company help improve her standing in in Hollywood going forward? Well, I think we can say it helped a little until it didn't. She was making movies again, though, starting with the film Bus Stop. And in February of 1956, at a lavish press conference at the Plaza Hotel, she Mm. and Laurence Olivier, Mm -hmm. the esteemed English thespian, announced that they were making a film together called The Prince and the Showgirl, directed by Olivier. Now, it was based on a play called The Sleeping Prince, which Marilyn Monroe Productions, a.k.a. Marilyn and Milton here, had secured the rights to. But the production was an unmitigated disaster. Even though she had Paula Strasberg at her side during the filming, she wasn't able to connect to the role. And she was playing off a troupe of performers who were, you know, not necessarily thrilled or all that familiar with the method style of acting. Yeah, I think that Sir Lawrence Olivier probably he embodied a much different style, shall we say. He had his own method. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, tragically, the failure of this film also caused a permanent rift with Milton Green and a prompt end to their production company. That pipe dream of greater independence ended with the end of the production company, and with it, any hope of more diverse roles on screen. It's really sad. It's heartbreaking to think back at their optimism just less than two years before. Yeah, sadly, many things were breaking down in her life by this time, both at home and in her career. Not to mention the many physical illnesses and ailments she was suffering at the same time. She turned even more to pills and booze, these crutches that had always been employed by her throughout her career. So considering all of that, I think it's pretty extraordinary that she then gives one of her strongest performances in what I personally consider to be her best film, Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot, filmed in California in 1958 and released in March of 1959. I'm through with love, I'll never fall again. Said a doo love, don't ever call again. For I must have you on no one And so I'm through with love I've locked my heart, I'll keep my feelings there I've stopped my heart with icy frigid air And I mean to I mean, one of the greatest comedies of all time it's, it, mm-hmm. it is literally always on the list, right, that come out. <laughs> yes. And uh-huh. she is just wonderful as Sugar Cane. Now, she wasn't all that great to work with. 
she was constantly late and having to reduce scenes. I mean, literally dozens of times. I, I'm not sure mm-hmm. any of us would have had the patience to actually work with her. But at the end of the day, the end result was a masterpiece with a critically lauded performance by Marilyn. Variety Magazine declared, quote, she's a comedian with that combination of sex appeal and timing that just can't be beat. The film became a massive hit. It was nominated for several Academy Awards. And then Marilyn went on to win Best Actress at the Golden Globe Awards. And she looked exceptionally glamorous at the film's New York premiere back at the Lowe's State Theater in Times Square, where The Seven Year Itch had premiered. Also looking glamorous were the gaggle of Marilyn Monroe impersonators who were gathered around the theater (laughs) in celebration. See, she has become an icon. Um, But unfortunately, it's after these happy times, though, that things got pretty dark in Marilyn's story. Well, you know, after working on the film The Misfits, which had been written by her husband, the two separated for good. The divorce was finalized in January of 1961, a few weeks before The Misfits hit movie screens. The film was a notorious flop. Just days after its release, an exhausted and distraught Marilyn Monroe checked into the Payne Whitney Psychiatric Clinic on the Upper East Side. You know, through this, throughout this sad, steady decline, I do think it's rather extraordinary that we haven't yet mentioned one of her most internationally famous New York City appearances. I believe you're referring to an event at Madison Square Garden. We saw her earlier in the story on an elephant, you know, the the place in Hell's Kitchen. It was here that Marilyn very famously sang to President John F. Kennedy at a grand birthday gala there on May 19th, 1962 wearing a beautiful sequin dress. You could almost say Marilyn was at her most goddess-like at this moment, although she was quite nervous. But looking at this moment another way, Marilyn is the lasting moment to come from this Madison Square Garden salute. But the morning after, most newspapers actually didn't pay that much attention to Marilyn, preferring to cover you know, the speech of the president, and appearances by other celebrities like Ella Fitzgerald, Judy Garland, Peggy Lee, and Maria Callas. Now, in this clip, you'll hear host Peter Lawford making a very unfortunate reference to Marilyn's constant tardiness. Mr. President, the late Marilyn Monroe. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Happy birthday to you. Less than three months later, on August 4th, 1962, 
Marilyn was found dead in her Los Angeles home of a barbiturate overdose. It is a moment well-documented, well-examined, over-examined, in fact, and a tragic end to one of the world's greatest stars. Most of the obituaries published the following day were focused on the scandal, on the most lurid details of the scene. For instance, the New York Daily News went with Marilyn Monroe found dead, sleeping bottle at bedside, her hand touching phone. And in the New York Times, a bit more succinctly, Marilyn Monroe dead, pills near. Only an editorial in the paper seemed to suggest this alternate path that she had dreamt for herself. Quote, The sad and ironic realization is that Miss Monroe sincerely aspired to creativity and quality in the films and perhaps in the theater. But the effort to overcome the many obstacles that were in her way were apparently too great for her. Therein lies the tragedy and the tragedy of Hollywood. An obituary in Time magazine featured a quote from Marilyn that I had never heard before, a quote reflecting on this international role that she found herself playing both on and off screen. Quote, I never quite understood it, this sex symbol. I always thought symbols were those things you clash together. That's the trouble. A sex symbol becomes a thing. I just hate to be a thing. But if I'm going to be a symbol of something, I'd rather have it sex than some of the things they've got symbols for. She was interred three days after her death at Westwood Village Memorial Cemetery in Los Angeles. For 20 years after her death, Joe DiMaggio had red flowers sent to her gravesite three times a week. Today, her headstone is frequently covered in lipstick kisses from her adoring fans. But Greg, we are here to celebrate Marilyn and her life and her time in New York and her career. And so now we'd like to go a little deeper into Marilyn's story and her lasting legacy. It is our great pleasure to welcome to the show Alicia Malone, who, as a host on Turner Classic Movies, introduces and offers commentary and insights on a wide, very wide range of classic films. Alicia is the author of several books, including Backwards and in Heels, The Female Gaze, Essential Movies Made by Women, and last year's Girls on Film, which includes an entire chapter on Marilyn Monroe. She also joined me earlier this year as host of HBO's official Gilded Age podcast. And it's so nice to see you again, Alicia, and welcome you to the Bowery Thank Boys. Thank you, Tom. It's so nice to see your face again. And Greg, it's so nice to meet you. I've heard your voice for so long. <laughs> We're meeting each other finally. Uh, t- Tom's two co-hosts here, finally, <laughs> to share our love of Marilyn Monroe. Alicia, in Girls on Film, you write about your career watching women in movies, including, of course, Marilyn. And in fact, you start that chapter with a charming story about watching Gentlemen Prefer Blondes with your sister. Could you share that story with our listeners? Yes, I would say that Marilyn Monroe is the main reason that I fell in love with classic films and also the reason why I started reading film books uh, and books about 
movie stars because I saw Gentleman Fur Blondes when I was quite young. Me and my sister would watch it. We would learn all the quotes. We would learn all the dances. We would perform uh, Two Little Girls from Little Rock. To, for anyone who was unfortunate enough to be walking past our living room door, we'd say, come on in, and we'd show you. I always wanted to be Marilyn. We're just two little girls from Little Rock. But I found her so intriguing. I think at first it was her beauty, like most people. You see her and you see how beautiful she was, how magnetic she was on screen. But even at a young age, although I couldn't articulate it, I felt like there was something more to her, that Marilyn Monroe was a performance, that she was, as Lorelai Lee, this dumb blonde Mm -hmm. character, not only playing a character but also making fun of herself. There just seemed Mm -hmm. to be... A, a disconnect. I thought, how can someone speak like that naturally with <laughs> that whisper? How can someone move like that, you know, wiggling as she walks? And because she was this sort of cartoonish version of a woman, I felt like I could, you know, try my mum's high heels and mince down the hallway just like her and try to try on this version of womanhood. But I just wanted to know more about her. So I, I started reading film books and And therefore, I think you could say Marilyn Monroe essentially gave me my career because now that's what I do for a living. Well, on our show today, we really focused on one specific era of Marilyn's life or her year as a New Yorker, in specific the year 1955. Why do you think this year in New York was so important to Marilyn, not just to, to her career, but maybe even perhaps to her legacy. Like what was so important about this year for her? Yeah, this was a really important year in her life because she had become a star with Gentleman Fur Blondes, but that was actually her 17th film role. So she'd been working in Hollywood for a long, long time. She was instrumental in creating the Marilyn Monroe persona. You know, she wanted Monroe. That was a family name. She was given the name Marilyn, but she created the whole platinum blonde, uh, you know, whispering voice. She created that. It was obviously very successful, became a big star, but she was frustrated with the types of roles that she was getting, just a series of stereotypical dumb blonde roles. So at this point, she finally realized that she had a lot of power in Hollywood and that maybe she could stand up for herself for the first time. So that was very pivotal to her development, realizing that she could have some sort of creative control over her career. But also just personally, it was a year of, I think, self-discovery for Marilyn. She was only 28, 29 at the time, which now, you know, seems very, very young. And she was able to, for the first time since she'd become famous, drop the persona that she had created and try to discover who she really was without the the Marilyn Monroe glamour aura around her. So she was able for the first time to to go to New York and and live somewhat anonymously and um, delve into acting in a more serious way. And that's what she wanted to do more than anything was to be taken seriously as an actress. She was on stage, of course, you know, with the Actors Studio and working alongside people who were, of course, taken much more seriously, right? You know, especially a lot of the a lot of the men 
How do you see her training specifically with Strasbourg changing her career going forward? Is that reflected in her future films? Is it, is it something that you could sit down and see, oh, she's definitely like picked up a different kind of technique in this particular film yes. and that kind of film? Absolutely, because I mean, she always worked really hard in her roles. And I think that's something that people aren't as aware of, is that even the stereotypical dumb blonde role she took very seriously. She studied with acting coaches. You know, she, she notoriously was late to set all the time, but not because she was a diva. It's just because she really wanted to do a good job and she was very insecure about her acting talent. So she was very intimidated by going into the actor's studio and working alongside people like James Dean and Eli Wallach and Kim Stanley, who she revered on the stage. And she wasn't sure if she was up to, to scratch, but having an acting coach like Lee Strasberg say that she had talent and give her that confidence, I think really enabled her to take some of that method training mm. and place it into her roles. So immediately when she gets back and she makes Bus Stop through Marilyn Monroe Productions, I mean, you could look at that role on the surface and say, well, this is another dumb blonde role. But once you really take a good look, you see that there's so much more nuance to it. And gone is is all the affectations that she made famous as Marilyn Monroe, that breathy voice, the the pouting lips, the, the way she moves. Instead, she delves deeper into her character's vulnerabilities and she's able to show a different side to that idea of a dumb blonde. So I think you definitely see a change from then on. Mm-hmm. And you just alluded to something earlier about how she was capable of kind of turning on and off this character yeah. called Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> Was that fully appreciated, do you think, by the public? Do you think they, they knew that, that she was a character or did they, you know, did the public kind of underestimate her? Absolutely. She was made fun of so many times throughout her career. People did not take her seriously as much as she was a famous icon. They didn't see her as a, a real actress and she had to fight against that. So it's interesting that she created this persona for herself that was obviously extremely success- successful, not only during her time, but even now we're still talking about her. She's still, her image appears when you walk down Hollywood Boulevard on, on various souvenirs. I mean, she is so iconic for the Marilyn Monroe persona, but in a way she became trapped by that persona. And she always saw Marilyn Monroe as a character, someone that she could switch on and off, as Eli Wallach tells a story about walking down the street with her and her suddenly morphing into Marilyn and people turn and take notice of her. And she said, well, I felt like being Marilyn for a moment. She would look in, a, in the mirror and, and, and she would, you know, talk, talk to herself as Marilyn Monroe and not as herself, Norma Jean. A lot of self-awareness. Definitely. More than, more than you would expect, I think. Uh, but I think one surprising breakaway from that stereotypical public image was the fact that she really became a businesswoman with Marilyn Monroe Productions. And over the course of her career, she really became more savvy, right? I mean, do you, mm-hmm. do you see her kind of taking the reins of her career more? Um, and does she ultimately benefit from this as, she, as her career goes on? Yeah, she definitely became more and more savvy about the business throughout her many years in Hollywood. 
but I think she she started out that way too. There's stories of when she was a contract player and they they were only required to come to set when they were called. They they didn't need to be around the studio all the time, but the stories of her riding her bike to the studio and hanging out and asking the makeup artist for for tips and tricks and asking the lighting director about how they light a scene. She was always so intent on learning the full facets of the business and then she was able to use that to full effect when she launched Marilyn Monroe Productions. I think the public was very surprised by her becoming a businesswoman. They didn't see her in those terms. I think Hollywood was very surprised by her trying to take the reins, particularly the studios who had benefited from her image and putting her in these very simple roles Mm -hmm. for so long. They didn't want her to be able to have more creative control. But she learned more and more about the business. She would always watch and learn. And then she was able to put that into effect with Marilyn Monroe Productions. And then was it unusual for an actress to have her own production company at this time? I mean, today, of course, it's not unusual. Many actors Mm -hmm. uh, go that route. But it seems to me that this is something kind of extraordinary for the 1950s. Yeah, particularly for Marilyn. So there there have been stars with production companies before. Often they were used by studios as a way of getting a tax cut. There was some kind of tax benefit in producing a film in conjunction with a different production company rather than through their own. So Warner Brothers used to do this and there's stories about Betty Davis where they Mm -hmm. helped her set up BD Inc. uh, to create some movies and she... They didn't expect her to actually want to produce. They thought she would just star in whatever they put her in. But, of course, Betty Davis being (laughs) Betty Davis, (laughs) she was a a full-on producer on A Stolen Life and and the studio did not like that. So there there had been stars with production companies before, but not someone to the level of of fame as with Marilyn. I think the disconnect particularly with her persona and the idea of her being a producer, I mean, people did not take her seriously in that way. And I think uh, Hollywood took her uh, for granted as well that uh, the, the executives just thought she would do whatever they told her to do. So when she took a stand and said no and left for New York, it was a huge surprise. And I think it was just one chink in the armor of the studio system and and one of the many reasons why it ended up crumbling a little bit later after this. And so as a result, then you could say of Marilyn's year in New York, she not only got more financial control um, over what she was getting paid because she had been paid so much less than her co-stars in those big hit movies of of 53 and 54, Um, but she also then got more creative control over what kinds of roles and who she was going to be on on screen. That's right. By flexing her power against Fox, they realized not only how profitable she is to the studio and that they needed to take care of her in order for her to stay with them, but she, so therefore they gave her a better contract with a higher salary, but then she was also able to bring in the, the piece of the production company and be able to pick her projects and say, I want to make mm-hmm. Bus Stop, this this play. I want to bring that to the screen and I want to, to make the play that eventually was called The Prince and the Showgirl and I want to work with a great actor like Laurence Olivier who also directs. So she was able to really change her career from that point on. And even though you look at, say, Some Like It Hot and you think, well, she's working with Billy Wilder once again. She's playing this like 
silly character. She was also much more vocal on that set. She convinced him to change the opening where you see, well, when you see her character for the first time, she made him rewrite the script so it would have have more clues about the characters, uh, what the character was like, and to make her more kooky rather than a dumb, simple blonde. How do you think Marilyn is looked at today from a modern perspective? There are a million books. She is, you know, she is quite literally an icon in the original sense of the word. Like she represents Hollywood. She represents femininity in for many people. How does the sort of legacy of Marilyn, how do you think it's translated today? And do you think that that translation is fair? It's really interesting. There's a couple of different ways people are looking at Marilyn today. And uh, I was part of a CNN series earlier this year called Marilyn Monroe Reframed. And the idea of it being giving Marilyn Monroe some agency back that she was instrumental in creating her career. She was a businesswoman, like with Marilyn Monroe Productions. She worked hard at acting, you know, and that she was just at the end of the day, very human. She's a mess of contradictions. She's uh, messy like we all are. So I think sometimes people try to put her in the retroactively feminist box. You know, she was curvy, she was this and she was that. She is a representation of a modern woman at that time. Or they try to deride her by making fun of her. She becomes the butt of the joke. It's more, it's brutal and it sort of strips her of of having any agency over her career. You know, or there are people like me that talk about her as, as being someone who was a shrewd businesswoman and a great actress. That's the thing about her. She was a wonderful actress. Uh, and having more depth and complexity than other people see her. And it's hard to nail down the facts of her life for all of these books are, are very different in terms of their their various facts and and it's it's there's not one story about her. So it's interesting to see the way that she's being portrayed today. And I just personally, being a Marilyn Monroe lover, hope that people get a sense of of what she was like as a person and not just see her image on screen and and see the the sad parts of her life. She had a very sad life, fulfilled with tragedy and uh, came from, you know, childhood abuse. But the fact that she went on to create such an incredible career and the fact that we're still talking about her today, I think speaks volumes on just how savvy she was as a person and as a businesswoman and as an actress. And and so for listeners, actually, then, who really haven't watched many of Marilyn's films, where do you think they should even start? Could you tell us what are your favorite Marilyn Monroe films? Yes, my absolute favorite is still Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. <laughs> that and that is number. one that I recommend. Yeah, I recommend to, for people to watch because you do see why she was a star and you see how funny she was you know she's just hilarious in the film and she can Um, sing and she sings she can sing yeah she worked really hard to sing and dance and i think everybody knows the diamond zero girl's best friend number but not many people have actually watched the film from start to end so i think that'll give you a good sense of marilyn and then if you want to go deeper i mean it's always surprising to watch niagara which Mm -hmm. was 
the first film where she had a lead role and she's playing a femme fatale, she's playing a villain. That didn't happen very often in her career. And also then to watch something like Bus Stop and just to see how she developed as an actress and, and how she was actively trying to bring layers of a character to her performance. I think that's really interesting to see. Check, check, check. We'll line it up for this weekend. Yay. Alicia, this has been such a blast. I'm so glad you've finally got to join us on the show. Um, Alicia can be found hosting films on TCM, Turner Classic Movies, and her most recent book is Girls on Film, Lessons from a Life of Watching Women in Movies. Thank you, Alicia, for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much, Greg, and thank you, Tom. Lovely to see you both, and thank you for doing this episode. I can't wait to listen. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being on the show, Alicia. Please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for a list of some of the sources that we use. There's like a million Maryland books and a many of, of this varying quality, but uh, we'll, we'll put our sources up on the website, as well as, of course, lots of glamorous pictures of Maryland during her time in New York City. A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on patreon.com slash boweryboys. You, patrons, make it possible for Greg and I to spend all of our time researching Maryland in Manhattan and, well, several shows at the same time. So thank you for letting us dedicate all of our time to producing this show. And we have special Patreon-only audio for our supporters. And this week is very, very interesting. So Joe's Pub just hosted... Three performances of the Bowery Boys' Ghost Stories of Old New York Live. But Tom Myers was not there. So where was he? Well, (laughs) sign up on Patreon and hear all about it in our latest patron-only audio. Check those all out over at the Patreon feed at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.